Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, I'm joined here with my two co-hosts, Ryan. Hey, film fans! And Austin. Hey, hey. So today we are breaking down the 2013 classic, if I may say, The Wolf of Wall Street, directed by Martin Scorsese. But before we dive in, I want to let you guys know that from now on, we are going to be announcing the movies that we will cover next so you guys can watch along and hopefully you'll get a chance to watch it so we can experience the movie together when we discuss it. So just to let you guys know up top, next week we will be doing Old Boy, the 2003 Korean movie directed by Park Chan-wook, which is another if I may say, masterpiece that I'm very excited to talk about. I thought that it was the remake, the Spike Lee remake. I've, I'm, oh, no. Oh, yeah, Have you actually fuck? seen that? <laughs> no, I, I started to watch it a little bit, and then I fell asleep, and I was like, why am I I <laughs> saw it in theaters. But uh, anyway, we'll get to that next week. Uh, for now, let's talk about The Wolf of Wall Street. So, um, as always, let's go around and get people's first impressions. And when I say first impressions, I mean, what was it like the first time you saw the movie, and what was it like revisiting? It. So I believe last time we started with Ryan. So let's start with Austin this time. Um, so I really don't remember the exact experience the first time I saw it. I know I saw it in theater at uh, an art house cinema that I always went to when I was in Dundee, Scotland. But I don't remember my experience other than the fact of just being blown away at what a masterful filmmaker Scorsese is. And, um, I mean, it's, it's really easy to talk about like the themes of this film as someone for like myself who has like a penchant for analyzing, uh, political economy or, or, uh, economic machinations in like late capitalism. This film is like prime material for me. Right. But beyond that, it's a fucking amazing movie. And this time watching it again, I think I was, I was almost more concentrating on that element, like the acting, um, the framing, the, the, the way that he uses, um, certain techniques, um, with camera movements and things like that, you know, like pans up and down up these, these massive buildings. It was just such an interesting way to create the scale and, and to set the sort of mise-en-scene. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. And to be honest, this is the part that Leo should have won best actor for. Revenant, Absolutely. whatever, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's the sort of thing where they do a lot of times with the, the best actor award in particular, not the best actress, best actress usually goes to like the hot new ingenue that's out, uh, at that particular time. Actor seems to be like almost like a lifetime achievement award, right? Like you don't get the award for the the film that you did that year. You get it maybe like a year or two later, and then they reward you for your body of work. And maybe that's why he won for The Revenant more than anything. But this is the film that was the best actor of that year. I think in general, people win Academy Awards like uh, for movies that they should have won before. So, for example— it, Scorsese was 20 years late in winning his Oscar. You know, most people say he should have won for Raging Bull, but he won for The Departed, which is not even the movie he's most known for or the one that I think has aged the best. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right with a lot of times with directors and actor, but I will say actress, it's always the hot ingenue, right? Whoever's like the hot young actor at that time. So Emma Stone, she's going to get it. Um uh, oh God, what's her name? Brie, Brie, Brie Larson, Jennifer Lawrence. It's like the young, hot ingenue. Whereas for actor, it seems to be like that. And maybe for director as well. But whatever. He should have won for this. He's fucking phenomenal. He's amazing. All right, cool. Let's move on to Ryan. Um, A++++. I uh, I saw it opening day at 
on Christmas, I think, in 2013. Yeah, I saw it with my whole family besides my mom, which, thank God, because it would have totally <laughs> changed my entire viewing experience. Um, I mean, there. this movie was one of those really strange bait-and-switch movies for me, because, I like, walking into the movie, I totally did not expect what I got, I, I, like, the first time I saw it. I remember 45 minutes into the movie being like, what is the story to this movie? We're just watching these people get fucked up all the time on quaaludes and, and you know, <laughs> having sex with hookers and stuff, and then kind of very slowly started to realize what Martin Scorsese was doing and, and basically just telling this whole, like, fantasy, basically, through the literally the point of view of the main character um, and how he was feeling at the time. And, it, you know, it's just such a, a weird experience, I think, watching this movie the first time, if you don't know that going into it, if you think it's just a normal movie, because it's not like any movie that I can think of. Like, uh, I think our last, you know, on our last uh, podcast, Spring Breakers, I, I, I think that that movie and this movie were pretty good companion pieces because they both are kind of told from the point of view of these people that we aren't sure we should be rooting for necessarily. And uh, uh, I love that about this movie. And yeah, uh, and from a filmmaking standpoint, like you were saying, Austin, it's just, it's classic Scorsese. I mean, he kind of had developed this weird subgenre all his own of like, where, like Goodfellas and this and Casino are all kind of in it where it's just, uh, I don't even know how you'd call it, but it's just a roller coaster ride. <laughs> it's the white collar Goodfellas. Right. Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I fucking love this movie. Can't have so much to say about it. Yeah. Right on. Rock and roll. Yeah. I, this movie, 10 out of 10. I love the shit out of it. When I was uh, similar to you, Ryan, I was went in to the movie thinking I was expecting some sort of I don't know. I, I by 2013 I had already kind of lost my faith in Hollywood and just assumed that nothing edgy would ever get made again. And I was about to walk into some heavy moralizing bullshit about how excess is bad and how uh, white collar criminals are you know the bane of existence. Blah blah blah. And I was shown something else. I was shown just a party movie completely devoid of moralizing, and it got fucking edgy. It takes a lot to surprise me, and I'm somebody who really appreciates, especially these days when people descend into offensive humor, because I, get, I feel like you have to be a 75-year-old cinematic legend to even get away with it these days. And this movie constantly made me laugh. My mind was boggled at the excess, at how ballsy it was, and... To Ryan's point about Spring Breakers, I think that the movie strikes a really interesting, delicate, precise balance of are we supposed to identify with Jordan? Are we supposed to have this critical distance in which we condemn his actions, but at the same time, we're having so much fun being with him, we kind of envy him in a sense. Watching this movie, I think, is just so... It says so much things profound about us as we react to it and also our culture, and I just can't wait to dive into it. But before we do that, let me give you guys a quick recap. Now, for a three-hour movie, it's actually funny how short this recap is because... Really not a lot happens, because as to Ryan's point, it's a lot of people just getting fucked up and having really funny conversations. So the year is 1987, and bright-eyed 22-year-old Jordan Belfort starts his career on Wall Street under Mark Hanna, an icon of success that clues Jordan in on a little secret. This whole thing is a racket, and the only thing that matters are making money and getting fucked up. 
After Black Monday, Jordan is forced to leave Wall Street and seek employment at the Investor Center, a small-time investment operation focused on selling penny stocks. Using his silver tongue and the hefty 50% commission, Jordan is able to make some serious money. Soon he befriends his neighbor Donnie Azoff, and together they recruit some of his childhood degenerate friends and create their own investment firm, Stratton Oakmont, a glorified pump-and-dump operation. Soon, the success of Stratton makes Jordan a hot name not only on Wall Street, but also to the FBI. After an affair, he divorces his wife and marries his mistress, Naomi. As Jordan descends further into lewds, prostitutes, and all sorts of debauchery, the FBI, led by Detective Denham, closes in on Jordan's operation. So Jordan is forced to funnel his money to a Swiss bank account and use Naomi's aunt as a rat hole. But when she dies, Jordan and co. almost die in a desperate boat trip to Monaco, and Jordan decides it's time to sober up. But despite his attempts at making an honest living, the FBI is still hot on his trail and eventually arrests him when his Swiss banker gets caught on U.S. soil. Naomi divorces Jordan, Jordan gives up Stratton and his conspirators to the FBI, and gets a reduced prison sentence in a pretty cushy-looking penitentiary. After he's released, he teaches other young hopefuls how to get rich with sales seminars. End of movie. So the first question I want to ask, which I think is the most obvious one, but I think probably the most important thing into how we read this movie is, how do we feel about Jordan Belfort? And does our opinion of him change at some point in the movie? Um, well, I th we think he's, I think, an unredeemable asshole, right? That uh, you shouldn't want to aspire to. <laughs> but um, what do you think, Jared? Well, once again, I think the movie is completely devoid of moralizing. If you think of a movie like Wall Street where there are those moments where uh, the character says, you know, when is enough enough? You know, there's that sense of moralizing in which there's the statement. But we never get any of this in this film. I, I, I would mean, say that, that that the one moment where we – up to the point about two and a half hours in when he literally like punches his wife, right? Like that to me is the moment – you're right that it's totally not explicit moralizing, but that's the moment where I feel like you're supposed to go, okay, you know, up to this point, he's just been a kind of a big dick, but now he's a violent dick and that's kind of pushing it over the, over the line. But you're right that, yeah, it's not explicit at all. There's no doubt that Belfort and his cronies do horrendous, contemptible things, but I think we can't help but admire his style, his showmanship, his lust for life. And I think that what makes this movie so interesting, similar to Spring Breakers, is this juxtaposition kind of forces the audience to confront that which is disgusting about our culture as well as ourselves. Once again, the, one of the great things about Scorsese movies, a lot of the things that we're talking about here are probably criticisms and concerns that were also leveled at Goodfellas and Casino. And it's the, the question of, is he glorifying this criminal lifestyle? And in all three of these movies, he doesn't judge his characters. And I think that that ultimately makes for why these movies are masterpieces, because there is a sense of nuance to this. There is a sense that, yeah, just as Henry Hill always dreamed of being a gangster, there's something about our culture and in all of us as individuals that does relish that lifestyle, that does, we do want to be him. We do want to live outside the rules. Uh, there's, there's a quote I forgot that was in the movie that I think speaks to what we're talking about is when Leonardo DiCaprio is pitching the idea to his degenerate friends. He says, look, guys, it's easier than you think. Everyone you're on the phone with wants to get rich quickly. They all want something for nothing. And that's true. And that's why I think that it's not all Jordan's fault. We can't just look at Jordan and say this is 100% his fault. We can mostly say that because, you know, he has no scruples. He's completely amoral. He doesn't care that he's ripping people off. But it's because he's selling these people something and they're buying in. Once again, he's not forcing anyone to do anything. 
because our culture fosters this idea that everyone wants to get rich, that being rich is the end-all, be-all, the idealistic lifestyle, they all want something for nothing, that makes it an easy sell. So I don't think, I, I think that that final shot, which I'd like to talk about more, is not only, I think, one of the primary readings of it is it's kind of a mirror to the audience, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but also that we are kind of just as much to blame and as just as complicit as Jordan because we want to buy into that dream. We all want to buy into Jordan's lifestyle. We all want you that to the, be our life. You mean the scene on the subway with the FBI agent? No, I'm talking about the actual final shot where all the audience members looking on after he's saying, after he's saying, sell me this pen. Yeah, I mean, I think I love when you can get someone like uh, a Godard who is going to, you know, his position. He's obviously a left wing communist. <laughs> you know, if you don't think so, watch La Chinois. It's a great sort of weird documentary thing. It's, uh, you know, where he comes from politically, uh, culturally, socially. But then with Scorsese, I mean, I think that if you sat down with him and, you know, I've listened to enough interviews that I think he would be critical of many of the the um, problems, let's say, with a, the sort of uh, financialized neoliberal late capitalist world, right? Obviously, I, I don't think he's saying everyone should go out and just exploit people and fuck people over. But but that's not his his position. That's not his job as an artist, as a filmmaker – I think all he wants to do is tell compelling stories. He wants to find compelling people. He wants to find interesting dramas. And he wants to just simply project them onto the screen. And I think he's content to let it lie there for the most part. Like you can't you can't avoid all moralizing. You can't avoid all positionality. But I think for the most part, he's really content to just explore those things. And this film does that, I think, in a masterful way. Because really, you're absolutely right, guys, that when you watch this, you do kind of want to be a part of it. Like, you, you enjoy it. And that last shot, and maybe that's like a condemnation that's like, you just spent three hours wanting what Belfort has and wanting to part, party with hookers and shave random people's heads and have like marching bands go through and have this crazy frenetic libidinal energy and enjoyment. You want that, but should you want that? Should you want the life of the FBI guy? But then the FBI guy who's the moral upstanding guy who's doing his duty for his country and locking away the criminals, he even has that moment where he's like, fuck, man, this sucks sitting on this fucking subway living this life. I'd rather be on a yacht, even though the yacht might be like crashing into 100-foot waves. That's fucking awesome because it creates an energy. It, it's a vitality. It's a life that you live. It's the frat party life, man. I mean, this is why it's so tough for men, particularly like in the media, we like to talk about it, but you know, like white middle-class men, uh, or I'm sorry, middle-aged men to, um, middle-class too, but white middle-aged men who are like clamoring for those glory days when they were like Phi Kappa, whatever the fuck, and they were on the football team and they had their high school homies. And then now they're like married and they're bored and they're picking up their kids from ASO soccer games. And it's like, fuck, I want that energy again. And this film, it shows you how Wall Street is like the perpetuation of that lifestyle. So it's interesting that you mentioned earlier, Austin, that this time you watched it, that you were focusing more on the filmmaking, on the editing choices, on the cinematography choices, the performances, etc. And, we, and, we're, and we're saying that the film is kind of devoid of moralizing, but to your point, the content of the, or at least you say Scorsese, you know, definitely is critical of this lifestyle. And I think that, yeah, I, that's not controversial. I agree with that. But right now we're talking mostly about the content of the movie. But if we talk about the form of the movie, 
in terms of the way that it's made, the elliptical editing, how the film jumps back and forth through time, manipulating space and time, giving us the feeling of being really fucked up and in a raw state of constant excitement. The form gives us that pace of living life in the fast lane. Um, I think that the form of it really does want, it is drawing us in and wanting us to have fun. Yeah, like it, yeah, and like that bit when he's flying the helicopter at the beginning and there's like that weird framing. I don't know what what's going on there, but you're kind of like blurred and it's a little fucked up. And he's like, when he's first starting to tell the story, the color of his car changes. It's like not red, but it was white, you know? Right. Um, and so you're automatically introduced to an unreliable narrator, uh, narrator. You're automatically introduced to the fact that this is us telling a story. Or this is, I'm sorry, not us. This is this is Belfort telling a story, which means that this isn't about necessarily uh, recounting objective facts per se, but in uh, and Freud would talk about this, but it's this idea that, you know, our memories, and Freud's not the only one, but that our memories are filtered through the present now at all times. So even when we talk about that thing that we have supposed clear memories of, we're still filtering them through how we understand them in the present, which again creates that ambiguity, which again creates a, a sort of almost hallucinogenic or a hallucinatory experience. And so, yeah, that kind of all fits together at a formal level, which I think makes, again, this is why Scorsese is a masterful filmmaker and not just someone who's trying to like preach an ideology through the medium of some sort of formal exercise, formal artistic exercise. Which is so refreshing that's, for that's me. That's a rare gift. So refreshing. It's a really fucked up character study. So I don't know. Character study, I, I don't know. Like the word, I, I don't really know the formal definition of character study, but character study to me means, uh, you know, some sort of like French art house slash Vincent Gallo film where really there is no plot and it's just about the nuances of a character. It's about exploring a one person's personality and character and the, and you like to Austin's point you're literally getting it from his point of view in his words on his terms and the, but then the brilliant part is that at the end it's kind of like his character's reflection on us too at the same time. So since we've already kind of talked about it a little bit, let's talk about most important two shots in the film. So the first one we've already kind of touched on is the shot of denim. So earlier when Leonardo DiCaprio and denim are on DiCaprio's yacht or Belfort's yacht, he says to him, do you ever think what would have happened if you had stayed the course, referring to the fact that Denim actually did apply for a broker's license. And Denim says, you know, when I'm riding home in the subway, my balls are fucking sweating wearing the same suit three <laughs> days in the row. Yeah, you bet I've thought about it. Who wouldn't? And I think that who wouldn't is super important. Another thing I was I was looking into some of the early reactions to this film and I remembered that there was a fair amount of criticism, just like there is with all Scorsese movies. There was a fair amount of criticism when Goodfellas came out for the same reason. Oh, he's glamorizing the gangster lifestyle. You know, he's incentivizing people to do crime, making it look glamorous. And I don't think this is too different, but there's something about this who wouldn't aspect that I think is really true. And for the for the critics that, you know, walked out or said that this movie is morally abysmal or that it's making, I think they need to get off their high horse because I really agree. Yeah, I really think that no matter how much self-righteous indignation we might feel by condemning Jordan's actions, we still want to be him. Who wouldn't want to? 
Can I can I read something from uh, Jean Francois Leotard's uh, writings on libidinal economy? I don't know if you guys yeah, are give me, familiar give, with him. Give me a little okay. give me a little background on who he is before you get into that. So he's generally known as being the individual that sort of coined the idea of the postmodern. He wrote a book called The Postmodern Condition, and the idea of the postmodern for him is the idea that it is incredulity towards meta narratives, right? Like this sort of disbelief or critical distancing to meta narrative. And that was his book that he wrote in God, I want to say seventy eight, seventy somewhere around there. But um, he wrote uh, this book on libidinal, libidinal economy in the early 70s. And so here's a little excerpt from uh, a writing from 1974 in which he's talking about this very issue. And what he's doing is he's trying to distance himself from the sort of leftists in France in the late 1960s after the sort of a uh, revolt in May 68 that just spread around the world. And also he's criticizing sort of post-colonial efforts and things like that, particularly the the, the typical Marxist idea that um, that like we have this idea of a species being and we want to we want to live in these socially de-alienated existences, but that capitalism corrupts us and it makes us into to uh, non-humans or inhumans or something along those lines. And his argument is a little bit different. And so he talks about this idea that, you know, the typical Marxist uh, argument that, you know, you either have to do it or you die, right? You either have to sell your labor to the market or you die. And this is what he ends up saying. He says, um, so he says that or die. Is that the alternative? He says, so that if they, the workers, the laborers, if they chose that, if they become the slave of the machine, the machine of the machine, the fucker fucked by it, eight, 12, eight hours a day, year after year, is it because they're forced into it, constrained because they cling to life? Death is not an alternative to it. It is part of it. It attests to the fact that there is jouissance in it. Jouissance means enjoyment or libido. The English unemployed did not become workers to survive. They, and he says, hang on tight and get ready to spit on me. They enjoyed the hysterical, masochistic, whatever exhaustion it was of hanging on in the mines or in the foundries, in the factories, in hell. They enjoyed it, enjoyed the mad destruction of their organic body, which was indeed imposed upon them. They enjoyed the decomposition of their personal identity, the identity that the peasant tradition had constructed for them, enjoyed the disillusion of their families and villages, and enjoyed the new monstrous anonymity of the suburbs and the pubs in the morning and evening. I think that this film is about the enjoyment of the destruction, if you will, of this supposed pure idea of what the human is supposed to be, right? So the moral tale of uh, The Wolf of Wall Street would be the one like in um, in Wall Street where it's like greed is good and obviously Gordon Gecko is the bad guy and right. you don't want that life because that's a bastardization of what it truly means to be human because to truly be human is to live outside or beyond the capitalist framework. What, what Leotard is doing, he's sort of deconstructing that by saying, no, 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 we actually enjoy our participation in the capitalist system even as it constructs us in a way, not in a sense of destroying this supposed pure identity that exists either before or after capitalism, but in constitutively constructing us within certain conditions. And it, those conditions are so entrenched that it's hard to get out of it, maybe impossible to get out of it. So we just kind of enjoy the, that's what the jouissance is. We just enjoy our libidinal experience of the sort of crazy, fucked up, frenetic, hysterical nature of late capitalism. So when I think of, <clears throat> I'm semi-familiar with the term jouissance. And to me, it's like, it's almost like pleasure in pain. Is that is that an accurate way to describe it? 
I mean, it could. I mean, remember what we talked about in Spring Breakers, that the French idea for orgasm, the French word for orgasm is little death. And, and jouissance kind of has a libidinal um, echo to it. You know, sometimes actually speak, people speak of jouissance in relation to an orgasm. So, yeah, there is a pain and pleasure. And he does talk about, actually later on, he does talk about this as being a masochistic activity, that we masochistically enjoy our exploitation. So, in a sense, you're saying that in this movie, we have... Basically, Scorsese's just shoving it in our face. Like, this is the fucked up society that we live in, and we're almost— oh, in, yeah. We We enjoy ha- having, basically, s- similar to what you said in Spring Breakers, uh, Scorsese putting the middle finger up to the audience. Like, hey, this is the culture you live in. You let this happen, and you're getting shit on for it, but don't you fucking love watching this shit? You love it. Yeah, yes, I think that is my it, interpretation, too. <laughs> Except without the, the teenage angst that, like, I think still resonates with, like, Harmony Kareen, right? He still right. has that— like angstiness. Scorsese's a little bit more, I don't want to say mature and in a way that like he's better, but he's just, he he's lived longer. I think he views the world differently. I think he's more comfortable with nuance and subtlety. And I don't think he thinks it's his place to moralize. I think the last, the, I think the last shot is the, is the true middle finger shot because up till then you're just with him. And then it's not till the very end where I feel like Martin Scorsese puts that big punctuation on it. Like, do you think it's a yourself. middle finger or do you think, because, because you know, Scorsese is a Catholic, right? And like, um, and, and he likes the idea, I think of piety maybe. So maybe he's just kind of like letting us like piously worship because I think that this is a film actually of worship, which is another theme. Uh, I think just the way that it's done. Cause you know, um, uh, DiCaprio's character, Belfort even talks about how money is the one thing that will give you everything. So money right. is, money is like this religious fetish that he sets even up. Save the spotted owl. That's right. That, and yeah, make it, you a better person. You know, and it'll yeah. make you a better person. It will. It'll. It'll like elevate you to a transcendent level. So there is this notion of like religious worship and piety. And so Belfort's character at the end. I mean, those when when the audience are kind of like viewing him, they're in awe of him. And then it goes to the office building, and and when it's like the camera's like moving down that as well. You know, at at an, at an earlier stage, it's like they're you're both. There's this idea that like worship is taking place, that piety is being expressed. So it, I don't like, know. I, I, like I, I've never thought finger. of it like that, but I like it as kind of like a church, a church setting. Um, well, well yeah. they're they're trying to learn from him too. You know, they're all taking notes and like they want to be him. Well, but you know? what do they want? They want heaven. They want heaven they want on earth. They want yeah. yeah. And I think that does. So let me just for people who don't remember what the last shot is. The last shot is he's at the sales seminar. Jordan is out of jail. He's teaching people how to sell, how to become rich. He says, sell me this pen. And as he's going down the line asking people to tell him how to sell the pen, the camera tilts up and just lingers on the crowd. And I think the crowd, and I do think this is deliberate, the final shot, it's like all the people in the crowd are all painfully normal faces. They all look very dejected. They all look very almost pitiful. And you can see how they're there. They dream of riches that will elevate them beyond normality. And to be exceptional. And money has that transformational power, which more to Austin's point about it being kind of like a religious experience and how religion can transform you. And people, similar to how people look to Christ to turn their life around, money has that transformational power. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's something called the prosperity gospel that's extremely important in the, you know, the the history of, let's say, the latter half maybe of the 20th century um, and up till today. 
where the idea is is that these preachers will preach this idea that if you give to them um, and if you exhibit faith in this life, then not only will God reward you in the next life, but he'll reward you with riches in this life. So you get guys like uh, there's a preacher by the name of Creflo Dollar who, interestingly enough, his last name is literally Dollar. Um, I don't know if it's birth or not, but, uh, you know, he's got like private jets and shit like that. And and there are these various other figures like, I mean, some people would say Joel Osteen kind of is in this tradition. His dad definitely was. And what they're selling you is they're selling you happiness like in this world. And and this film really demonstrates or exhibits the idea that capitalism is the religion of the day. And it doesn't have to explicitly evoke religious ideas like Jesus and the cross or or whatever the religious orientation is because money is the substitute for salvation because money is the salvation. Well, then how would you interpret Denim then? Because Denim, in a way, he's the Boy Scout. He is, in a sense, although not related to money, he is the most pious of all the characters. But yet he is the one condemned at the end. In a sense, that final shot in the subway shows that there is no reward for those who live modestly and by the rules. You know, he's he, he's a better guy, just right? Like, uh, uh, like the movie's kind of about greed in that way, you know, like, all these people at the end are the greedy ones, and then but then the guy that did it right, yeah, he's not getting rewarded for it, but he gets to go home at the end of the day knowing he's a better dude. Yeah, that's exactly it, though. Is that is that enough? Is that enough of a reward for him? Because I, I don't think that's think evident that in the is. text at all. I mean, all we see is, is because like the final shot we see, we see the fulfillment of his line that says, you know, when I'm in the subway with my balls sweating and having to wear the same suit three days in a week, yeah, I think about that my life may have been better if I had uh, stayed the course and got my broker's license. If it was Denim going home to his wife and kids and, you know, giving his kid a big old kiss on the cheek and knowing that he's going to grow up <laughs> to be a stand-up man, that would be a different story, but that's not what Scorsese chose. Scorsese chose to put him in the setting in which he is, in a sense, at his most dismal, where he's looking at his life <laughs> and thinking, did I make the right choice? Is this worth it? Did I really even make a difference? Because at the same time, because at the same time, like Jordan Belfort, he got a slap on the wrist. He went to high security tennis camp. And, you know, and then he's back. He's he's back to making money doing sales stuff. He just got in trouble in Australia a couple of years ago for doing like another I guess maybe not entirely above the board thing. I don't want to say illegal because I don't know much about the case, but I know that he got in trouble again. So it's like, you know, there's no redemption here. It is interesting that 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 that, that one scene is one of the few scenes that are not in Jordan Belford's point of view. You know, he he's not watching that scene and narrating it like the rest of the movie. So it is like you. Yeah, I kind of agree with you now. You know, Jared, it it, it is kind of Scorsese showing that scene as the as his kind of end of his arc which is interesting. Well, and that's what's so good about about a good filmmaker is they don't just spoon feed it to you, right? Like they don't do and I love the way you described that, Jared. Yeah, the moralized scene would have been the one where he goes home and he's got this beautiful wife in this nice middle-class home and there's a meal on the table and he kisses his kids and he's completely satisfied. And it, then the idea is, see, that's the better way to live. It doesn't do that because he's a fucking good filmmaker and he wants to just let you hold and think and feel and see these complex social scenarios. And not only that, but just that he feels like you said, he's lived long enough to where he kind of has accepted that, you know, sometimes the bad guy wins, the pious guy doesn't get shit for what he's done. And uh, yeah, no, one, you know, no, no one learns anything is kind of what happens a lot in life in general, right? 
Well, especially in a culture and in a country that allows that to happen. And I know it sounds like I'm getting on my high horse and soapbox saying, you know, this should or should not happen. But I do think that there's an element of that, of that complicity of like, hey, you audience, you're having so much fun watching this. Well, why do you think that stuff like this happens? Well, yeah, but do you think that that's a culture, an American thing, or do you think that that's just a human being thing? Because I would say it's the latter, that he's more just talking. I would probably agree, but I do think it's exceptionally – I do think it's probably relatively specific to America. I don't know how well this movie did overseas, but – Having done a limited amount of travel, I could definitely see other cultures, like especially in China. Maybe they would find it funny, but I definitely do think that they would find it a little bit gross. Uh, and, and they might not have the same fun that we have watching it, but that's just speculation. Well, and if that's the case, like even if you were to say that, to say that that another country is becoming more consumerist is to sort of implicitly state that they're becoming more Americanized. And I don't mean Americanized in the sense that they're going to start eating hot dogs and saluting, you know, troops or something like that, but that the sort of socioeconomic framework of capitalism that is really known for emerging out of the West has now sort of, it's got a global effect. And what does that global effect induce is it induces a similar type of way of viewing the world, of consuming the world through just seeking that masochistic enjoyment, right? Of of seeking um, what Lacan calls the objet petit a, which is the small object of desire or the object cause of desire. It's not the object of desire because capitalism will promise you the object of desire, but you can never get the real object of desire. So what you have is you have these object causes of desire, which the philosopher Todd McGowan talks about like, it's like the wrapper to the Coca-Cola. It's the can. That's the object cause of desire. Because if you had unlimited Coca-Cola, the quote-unquote object of desire, then you wouldn't actually desire it because you'd have an unlimited amount of it. But the object cause of desire is the restriction, the the sort of um, cutting you off or the castration of it so that it actually stimulates your desire. It causes your desire. And that's being outsourced globally. And I think that, yeah, people could enjoy this film if they understand that tendency that same sort of capitalist tendency. If you don't understand that, I don't know that if you take this to like a pure sort of rural hunter-gatherer society that they would quite get why Jonah Hill's character is jacking off because Margot Robbie's character is so fucking hot after he's just <laughs> loaded himself with fucking quaaludes, you know? Yeah. I don't quite think it's going to have the same yeah, effect. I agree. So uh, <clears throat> about – I, I want to bring up something that – I, it goes more into what we're discussing about how to read this film, whether it's, it moralizes it doesn't, whether we're supposed to like Jordan or condemn him. So when the movie was released, people were, of course, offended. And, and you know, we talk a lot of, in this podcast about death of the author, and there's something interesting happened. So I read a report that there were screenings in which investment bankers were cheering during the movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, oh, Jesus. And, and so then I read a an article in the Huffington Post about how the Wolf of Wall Street can be best understood through the show All in the Family. So in the article, they talk about how in All in the Family, the character Archie Bunker is, you know, the patriarch. He's like old from an older time. He's like racist. He's like a bigot. And most people interpret this as some sort of like a satire that we were satirically taking down Archie Bunker every time that he espouses some sort of 
bigoted view, the episode then shows how he was misguided. But the network soon realized that there was a huge population of people that loved the show because they liked Archie Bunker and that Archie gave a voice to their beliefs. And I want to get Ryan's thought on this because in our last South Park podcast, we talked about how does South Park make anti-Semitic jokes in a time where anti-Semitism is on the rise? And Ryan's point was that, look, if you look at Cartman and think that he's actually somebody to look up to and that, you know, you should be anti-Semitic like Cartman, then that's your problem. And I Amen. I disagree with Ryan here because I think that's more complicated than that. You, you can never just tell somebody, oh, well, you don't get it. They're going to get what they get out of the entertainment. And I'm not – obviously, I'm not suggesting that we should censor things because we're afraid that people are going to get it wrong. But I guess I just want to hear your guys' thoughts about – um, how to address that, like, or, or if it even needs to be addressed, or are you saying does Martin Scorsese have a responsibility in how people perceive Jordan Belfort in this movie? Kind of. Um, I wasn't going to go that far because at the end of the day, I agree with you that he doesn't. Like, art does not need to, uh, you know, propel us toward a socially progressive society. Art is not a public service announcement. It doesn't have to make the world a better place in my opinion. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that art has an effect and it can inspire people to act certain ways. So I think that it's just a complicated question. Uh, yeah, no, I think more so than anything, like this one's way different than the South Park episode, in my opinion, just because at least in South Park, you have all the other characters to balance out with Cartman. You have, like, he kind of stands as this isolated weird pariah in the in the town it seems like on most episodes whereas this movie is literally one minute shy of three hours of a bunch of people that are similar all you know doing crazy shit um and seemingly maybe immoral shit and and then it's not till the very end and uh that we and what we've kind of talked about like the last scene the scene in the subway and then him punching you know his wife and stuff where you're kind of like in my opinion, I think it's Martin Scorsese saying, oh, yeah, wait, this whole thing you've been watching, you're not supposed to look up to this guy, but what is that? But then what does that tell us about you that you've enjoyed it? Kind of like uh, to your point, Jared. So, no, I, I don't um, – yeah, does that answer your question at all? Yeah, it, it does. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, Austin? I mean, yeah. So full disclosure, I actually used to work as a consultant in commercial banking for a little bit, so – I spent quite a bit of time in um, not quite this environment because I wasn't in like wealth management or investment banking, but I was in a similarly related field. And eh, you kind of do get this mentality. I can totally see why investment bankers would stand up and cheer. When you told me about that, I was like, yeah, that makes sense because because really what's on display is a grown-up version of the frat boy life. And I know I said that earlier, but I, I do feel like that. But – if you watch a frat boy movie now, if it's uncritical explicitly, that's different than there being self-awareness. And I think what this film has is it has a self-awareness. So I don't want to go so far as to say the investment bankers that stood up and cheered didn't quote unquote get it. But I do think that if you really pay attention, I do think that there's an, a self-awareness. There is a self-criticism in this film. And even if the film isn't to like make these uh, investment bankers like I don't know, lead them to like their conversion or something like that. 
art can still affect at like the psychobiological level, right? I call it uh, in some of my work actually it was called like the micro psychobiological level. It's like these tiny little intensities that can shift in the way that we think and view the world. And even if the investment bankers are standing up cheering, maybe there is still like a critical social thing that kind of seep in. But that's again because Scorsese is just self-aware rather than being heavy-handed. I don't know. I, 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 and that's what, again, all I can say is that's why he's a wonderful artist. And, and, and same with South Park, but South Park, it's still different. They are heavy handed, but they're just heavy handed across the board. Whereas this is, it, it veers away from all of that whatsoever. And that's why he's able to make amazing films about morally ambiguous individuals. You know, what's another good example of this. Uh, have you guys seen the movie Jarhead? Yeah. I I have not, actually. That's the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal film, right? Yeah. There's a scene where, so it's about the Gulf War. It's about these Marines who are about to get shipped off to Iraq, or what is it, Kuwait. Um, And right before they're about to get shipped off, like, all of them are, you know, basically they're sons of fathers who were in Vietnam, and they can't wait to go and just fuck some people up. And there's a scene where right before they're about to get shipped off, they're in the military movie theater watching the Wagner uh, Ride of the Valkyries scene from Apocalypse Now where they're shooting down in the helicopters. They have all those helicopters killing all the Vietnamese townspeople. So in Jarhead, they're watching Apocalypse Now and all the Marines are just losing their mind going, yeah, fucking kill that person. Fuck yeah. And, you know, that scene or that movie was not meant to glamorize the, the Vietnam War, but culturally it has taken on that meaning and i feel like something similar is happening here with the wolf of wall street where just at, like scarface right scarface and rap culture although i don't know i do think that scarface i don't think i don't think there's really much criticism with scarface i think that it's a tragic rise and fall but i don't think scarface suggests that oh tony montana shouldn't have done this the problem i think with the scarface rap culture thing is that if we're going to say that like white collar climbing that white people should go get billions of dollars, but then we're going to get angry when hip hop artists are like, yo, I'm just trying to chase that money. There's a double standard there. And so I think that's where the problematic comes in. Whereas this film is a little bit different, but I I, I totally, I'm vibing with what you're saying. And and I do think you're right. I do think you're right. Yeah. It's like a litmus test movie. It's kind of basically like how you react to this. You know, the movie doesn't give you enough to hang your hat on, you know, on, on whether the movie feels one or the other, but, but how you react is kind of, the point of the movie. Yeah, that's why I think that at least on one level, the final shot does function as a mirror to the audience. That right. that we just as like they are the audience watching Jordan teach them how to sell something, just as we are the audience getting so much gratification of the fact that we are having so much fun watching this guy steal our money and make really bad choices and objectify people and say really offensive things about dwarfs and we all laugh our asses off. Uh, we are we are them. We are the people who are giving him money. Yeah, and and it's not it's not that like the one reading of this, which I think is the bad psychoanalytic reading, would be like, oh, like deep down in our core, we're all just animals, and so like these people in their animalistic activities, they're just they're just doing what men do, right? I think that's like the bad, the kind of like bullshit evolutionary psychoanalytic reading that oftentimes gets gets bandied about. But I think again, the more interesting reading kind of fits along with the leotard thing before that. You're actually being constructed in this. Like Jordan Belfort, yeah, he always wanted to be rich, but when he's 22 years old and he's in that meeting with Mark Hanna, he's not 
he's not an quote unquote animal yet. He becomes more of the animal later, but it's because the structure or the system constructs him as an animal. And that's, I think, what's interesting about this movie is that that we too, as participants in a similar system, if we desire money and we desire the sort of quote unquote salvation that comes through being rich, then that will construct us in a particular way. And this is the lifestyle that we say we want and this is the lifestyle that we want to get. But is this all that, that we imagine it to be? Is this the fantasy that we want? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But you have to fucking see the 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 libertarian in me doesn't uh, agree with that uh, assessment just because I think everyone's greedy. Everyone wants money, but that's different than fucking over other people for your money, you know, which is exactly what they were doing. You know, I mean, all those people at the end obviously want money. You know, being able to sell a pen is a good thing, uh, skill to have. But if they had known, oh, yeah, guess what? The guy that's trying to do this, you know, literally is basically robbing innocent people, you know, and if, if all of them knew that that's how they were going to have to get the money, I think that a lot of them wouldn't say, oh, man, well, that's fucking awesome. Let's do that. Oh, see, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that they they might know. Maybe some of them know. Maybe some of them don't. But I think that at the end of the day, these people just want money. See, I don't, I don't, I don't think all those people in there were just, just evil, greedy capitalists. They're people that, yeah, they, they want to get ahead in life, and they know that, you know, if they're gonna, they're trying to do those extra steps, go to a seminar, and learn how to. I just to think that, the, that uh, you know, society under capitalism breeds this sense of desperation where people are like, all right, I'll do anything to get ahead, you know, and I think that that's Jordan had that same thing. And no, I think these there, people there are those up. people exactly, and Jordan Belfort's one of them, you know. But but to, but to say that capitalism breeds that person in everybody. I I would well I'm not say, I'm not yeah. saying that I'm saying that just these people in this circumstance I think it's kind of weird to suggest that they didn't look up who the person is that they're paying this money to go to a seminar to I think that they had to know that he had been in prison and what he had done he what, what well, he had I guess done. it is after he got out of his thing so yeah maybe you're right about that but still like I don't think that all those people are saying are 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 dreaming of the day when they get to fuck over other people to make money you know. I think that they're just saying, how do I make money? And this seems like a good way, selling stocks, yeah, <laughs> selling exactly, anything. Exactly. And that goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier with that idea of the object cause of desire, right? It's what is it that causes them to even desire to want to have money in the first place? And that's the issue that I think that this film at least explores is it's not that they have a desire to make money that's that they're fucking born with. You don't, you're not born desiring to be a billionaire when you're a baby, you know, but, right. but those desires are constructed and created. And that's one of the things that I think you see in Jordan's life is, is when he's, you know, at the table with Matthew McConaughey, he's still a little kind of like, what the fuck, man, you're doing drugs. And what you're like, you're cool with like not caring about producing a product. It's just about like money, making money, making money. Like you can tell he's not, he's not there yet. He's not a convert, but he gets yeah. created. He gets created into that type of person. And that's again, what's so interesting about this. You mentioned in the Spring Breakers podcast that uh, the girl's relationship with Alien was almost a sort of variation on a deal with the devil. And I was wondering if you got a similar sense with the character of Mark Hanna. I think there's almost something so interesting in that it almost can be read in a way that with that whole mm, like it's almost yeah. like a spell is cast on it's Jordan. It's like a weird tribal thing, isn't it? Right. Like, kind of like what we look at when we think of like indigenous peoples ramping each other up and you know and and then there's the bit where leo leads his whole office in it and they're like doing that ha 
and yes. they're going fucking crazy and they're fucking, they're like beasts for lack of a better word. Right. And, well, uh, also, yeah. would, would, would that not go more to your first point about the, the one that you said was not the good reading of it, that like Martin Scorsese is making like an animal, like this is in us, we're born with this animalistic instinct to just be the king on the mountain, you know? It and, could be. And, it, it could be either that or it could be let's learn this pattern of behavior and let's create it. And in your enacting of it, then you embody it, but it doesn't necessarily exist prior to the learning to practice it. Uh, Pierre Bourgeois uh, was a sociologist, and he would talk about the idea of the habitus. And so the habitus is the sort of like social habits that you exhibit within your different context. So maybe the investment world, uh, to, to just kind of look at the microcosm, they're not animals per se, and it's not that they have an animal instinct, but by contagiously spreading and imitating this animalistic behavior, you then become that animal. I guess I would just, I interpret it as it's not necessarily that all of us are animals, it's just that these guys are acting like animals. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can obviously generalize and say, Anyone who participates in the capitalist system is – but I, I, again, I don't think that's what the film is doing. I think that's an irresponsible reading of the film. I do think that there maybe is a grain of truth to that under certain conditions, but I think this film is way smarter than that. And, yeah. and, and I just don't think that he's as – I don't know. He's not like – he's not saccharine like that. He's not super sentimental to like these – grand nature things. He just wants to like tell cool stories about interesting and dramatic people. So there's one scene I want to talk about before we get into the mailbag. <clears throat> and that is when Jordan is about to leave Stratton Oakmont, but he, ultimately he decides not to. He gives a very heartfelt speech to Kimmy, who was a single mom who was once three months behind on her rent, who's now a wealthy, independent woman, all based on Jordan giving her a $25,000 vote of confidence in her, allowing her to pay off her rent, allowing her to pay her child's tuition. How did this scene affect you guys? Because this was the point in the movie where I was like, wow, this movie is really challenging me to not only think that, you know, obviously there's the obvious reading, whereas that it's satirical and everything that these people are doing is terrible. But this scene made me realize that, hey, Jordan is doing some good, too. I mean, were you guys a part of like a frat ever or did you have like a crew of like like homies that were like your your boys and you would like say bullshit like we're band of brothers and shit like that? Did you guys have that? Interestingly, my dad has been in the financial industry his entire professional life and my dad's life is a way less successful but similarly degenerate filled like just life like this. My dad would talk about quaaludes all the time. So this th th this culture did resonate with me when I watched it. I felt like, oh my God, I'm watching a hyperbolized version of my dad's life. And my dad was never as successful as Jordan. But um, so- is he, is he close with like his, his boys that were like, and I don't mean boys and like the only guys, because obviously Kimmy is a woman, but you'd still, it's like that bro culture. Like it was- is he still have like his boys that he plays golf with or that he like went to like fucking Cabo with? No, or he's not they like did? that, but he is the kind of person who would like make joke. Like, you know, he's always the guy who's like, oh man, you should have seen what Bob did at the office today. You know, he like, I mean, he wouldn't say this exactly, but like, you know, he did two lines and then almost like jumped out the window. It was fucking hilarious, you know, stuff like that. See, the reason I ask is because I kind of did grow up in that kind of culture before the financial world. I was in a rock band for a long time and and like, uh, you know, me and my quote unquote homies, like I used to talk to them as like being closer to me than my family. And, and the emotion that 
that you see exhibited in that scene for me is very similar to the way that I feel about my friends. You know, even though we've grown up and some are married and have kids and some are getting divorced or whatever the fuck, you know, we're like in these weird stages of our lives and hopefully I'm not quite as um, as juvenile in a lot of ways as I once was, although I'm I sure I am. But there's that intensity of emotion that totally resonates with me. You know, it's like being in the fucking military. You guys are, you're in the trenches together, so to speak, and you build these crazy intense levels of emotion together and through the ups and the downs and through the costs and the, and the stakes of making millions or losing millions that you really do create this crazy, intense, religious – and I'm using that word sort of metaphorically, sort of loosely, but you have this crazy, intense religious experience. And and I think that's what's going on in that scene, you know? Like, like he is like the preacher who offered them the gospel and she is someone who had her life saved. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. And he, she's, he, it's basically him taking care of his own, you know? A hundred percent. Mind yeah. you, he's still using money that he ripped off of other people. So it's not like, wow, you're doing an amazing thing. Right. But, but I, I'm just saying yeah. that a, a, a film made by a less talented filmmaker would not include that scene because, like, oh, that detracts from the message, like the over moralizing sure. message. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, well, I think it makes it more ambiguous, which is what this movie is kind of all about. In a way, this is almost like a this is almost like a war film for Scorsese. You know, like <laughs> like that's their trenches. You know, and I can't remember the journalist's name. I think it's Sebastian Younger, but don't quote me. People can Google, and he writes a lot about. He was like a war journalist, where he writes a lot about like the the problems of PTSD that are so rampant today when soldiers come back, and and he boils it down to it's not because of necessarily the intensity of war, because actually fewer people today are involved in the front lines than ever, but the rates of, of PTSD are higher than ever. And the reason he says is because you don't have that fraternity and you don't have the world that's going to embrace you when you come back from war. So you're kind of cut off from this, this intensity of connection and emotion and fraternity and fidelity. And then you're thrown into this alienating world where it's like, what, I'm supposed to just like fucking work 10 hours a day and maybe see my friends a couple times a year and, you know, do this thing with my wife and these kids and the soccer games. And, and it's this weird thing that like breaks us from the connections that we made when we were in the trenches in this film and in that scene that shows us just how intense and how important those investments can be for for a social being and that again is why it's also scary as fuck because then you're like whoa like even this world where you're exploiting people like ryan was just saying can still lead to these crazy intense emotional connections so i, I don't know let's go into the mailbag so ryan i believe you have some questions picked out for us uh, this one's from Frederick. Hey guys, at first, at first, I love the way you approach movies and stuff in general. I think this is pretty unique. I know it's a while back, but you talked about the connection between sex and death in Spring Breakers. You didn't quite know what to think of it. I immediately had to think of this quote by Kierkegaard: "There are well-known insects that die in the moment of fecundation." fecundation. So it is with all joy, life's supreme and richest moment of pleasure is coupled with death. In this part of either or Kierkegaard writes as someone who's constantly looking for pleasure, he comes to the conclusion that every pleasure has to end. So his goal is to stretch this moment to pleasure as far as possible. I think that fits to your def description of the movie. Keep up the good work. I think that's awesome. That's a fucking great quote. It reminds me, I was talking with a buddy of mine about how, uh, 
Like I first moved to Ireland and I was drinking a shitload of Guinness and I was like, man, this is just perfect. I just wish I didn't have the hangover. And he's like, yeah, but would you enjoy the drunk experience if you didn't have the hangover? And it's not obviously on the same level of sex and death, but it is that idea. It's like, would you enjoy the pleasure if we didn't have the experience of pain to judge it against or vice versa? So maybe, I mean, maybe that's the idea that when you have just like the craziest experience of sexual release that somehow that you're reminded of your fragility or as Norm MacDonald always talks about in his stand-up, he's like, you know, that moment of shame that you experience after orgasm, that that's like the loneliest and most terrifying moment because of your fragility and vulnerability. Yeah, there's something there. Of course, Kierkegaard is much more refined, but Norm MacDonald is a great philosopher of our age as well. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's awesome. Uh, okay. Hey, uh, this is about the Last Jedi podcast. It's from Edward. Ray being a random person created by the universe to balance out the force is stupid. It doesn't send the message of anyone can rise up and be the hero or whatever they meant it to be. It sends the message of maybe you'll win the force lottery and gain incredible power without even trying. They could have shown her training, learning, see, see her power grow, but no. Luke gets her to tap into the force once in the first lesson and reveals she's super powerful and proceeds from there. What do y'all think about that? Yeah, I can't believe they fucked this up again. I mean, I completely agree. And usually I'm not one to harp on like plot details or plot holes. But the fact that, you know, e even in the first movie, people complained that like, why is Rey matched by Kylo Ren? She's never had a day of training in her life. And instead of actually having her train in the second movie to make up for that, all we needed was one montage. It could just take like two minutes of screen time. But we didn't even get that. They just doubled down again. And in fact, they, like, co-opted the criticism of the first movie into it in a really awkward way. People were complaining that, why is Rey so powerful? She hasn't trained, and instead of having her train, he just basically changed the mythology of the Force to justify the fact that she's so powerful without training, which I think is really dumb. And another thing I've been thinking about is the whole idea of, like, the universe creating Rey to balance out the Force. How does that connect with, in the prequels, how Anakin was the chosen one to bring balance to the Force? Are we to believe that he did do that? Are we in a post-balanced force world? Are we supposed to believe that none of that happened? What the fuck is going on? I don't know, man. All I know is that uh, I've gotten a lot of shit for my take on The Last Jedi. So I'm going to stay silent and uh, listen, man, if you like it, go like it. Send all your hate mail to disembodied Jared. <laughs> yeah, I, I jump on all grenades here. <laughs> all right. From Landon. Hey guys, my suggestion for you would be finding the philosophy of the room. This doesn't necessarily have to be in terms of the plot, but rather it could be a meditation on the philosophy of why audiences love this terrible film so much. With the disaster artist's release, the, the room is likely to become even more popular, perhaps reaching a Rocky Horror Picture Show level of cult fame. There are a few videos that contemplate why the room has stayed with audiences for so long, and some are actually pretty decent, but I think you guys could do the best job, because so far, you always have. Oh, Thanks, thank Landon. You. What do you think, Jared? Austin, are, is this just more jouissance? Oh, yeah, it could be, right? Um, yeah, there, there's something, especially in the, I'm going to refer to it as the Twitter age, but that's just more like a, a synecdoche, right? It's more like that this age loves to fucking hate, man. You know, and we do it. There's this weird sadomasochistic enjoyment about laughing at other people and experiencing people's blunders and mocking something. And we love this idea of irony. Like, could you imagine like our parents, parents watching the room and finding anything enjoyable about it? <laughs> they just wouldn't get it. Like, I don't even think my parents would, but there's something about, you talked about it, Jared, like this post cynical world that somehow we're just like, 
we just enjoy being fucking dicks, man. And so we can watch this movie and really enjoy our dickish experience of the room. Yeah, I think that uh, maybe for April Fool's this year, we'll cook up something special. Have you seen The Disaster Artist, either of you guys? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, we we both loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I'm a big James Franco fan, so um I'm I'm down for it. But um oh, so you haven't seen it. But I haven't seen the film yet. Oh. But I haven't seen the film yet. And so I'm really excited to see it because um I know a, lo- a lot about the movie, uh, The Room, and um, I know a lot about the backstory and I just love Franco and his crew and what they're doing and shit like that. So uh I haven't seen it, but you know, it'd be awesome to like have to watch Disaster Artist and do like a double bill with The Room and talk about that. Yeah, that could be fun. I I mean, The Disaster Artist is one of my favorite of the year, so I'm so down for that. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. So I just want to remind you guys that next week we will be covering Park Chan-wook's 2003 classic, Old Boy. We will put in the description of this podcast where you can find it if it's streaming anywhere. And if I may just say, please, please, please do not watch the dubbed version. If you're going to plan on watching along with us in preparation for next week's podcast, please get the subtitled version. Or because, the Spike uh, Lee version. Not the Spike Lee, fuck that. We're not doing the Spike Lee version. We're doing the original Korean version. And you're going to want to hear the original Korean because Choi Min-sik, who plays the main character, Odesu, is so good. And even if you don't speak Korean, I do think that there is an element of, you know, a lot you can... Just the tone of his voice, the rhythm, all that stuff, you can you can still get a lot from the performance. And, you know, so please, 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 no dubs. So thank you so much to my co-hosts, uh, Ryan and Austin. Also want to remind you guys, the other podcasts, uh, we've still got our South Park podcast going called Respect Our Authorita. We actually just did an episode covering the Fractured Butthole, this year's South Park game. So be sure to check that out. We've also got the Thug Notes podcast where Sparky Sweets PhD, a.k.a. Greg, is uh, taking down the best books ever written. We've also got our Rick and Morty podcast still going, and we're really excited because this Monday we are going to be interviewing our first writer on Rick and Morty. So be sure to check that out. It's called The Squanch. And that's going to do it for today. See you next week when we tackle Park Chan-wook's 2003 Korean version, Old Boy. Thanks a lot, guys. Peace out from Hollywood, California on Show Me the Meeting! (laughs) Later, everybody.